0: How's everybody doing? Excellent. Uh, My name is Cameron, and I'm one of the pastors here. And once again, it is a huge privilege uh, to get to open up the scriptures with you. We're still in Galatians uh, chapter 4, actually. If you have your Bible, turn to chapter 4, verse 21. And we're going to finish out chapter 4 today. Um, You know, when Josh titled uh, this, this Galatians series, Gospel Freedom, he wasn't wrong. Uh, Today, we're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about the freedom that the gospel brings. So, uh, if you've been wondering, like, oh man, when's this gospel freedom thing going to come to bear? My friends, today is the day. Uh, That's not really true. We've been talking about that theme throughout the entire book, of course, Uh, and Paul is going to come at it one more time from another angle, because he's so passionate passionate that uh, his hearers understand the true gospel, not a counterfeit, not a half gospel, not a weird gospel, but the true gospel that brings freedom. So as we jump in, uh, let's, let's pray. Sound good? Uh, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is once again to have this space to gather. Um, Lord, that we can come together and listen to you, to sing to you, to, to commune with one another. And we just pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive the truth that you have for us, Lord, that whatever it is that you intended to to move in your people when you inspired Paul to write these words, we want to be moved that direction today. So we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever made a promise? Maybe, actually, the better question would be, have you ever been made a promise? Have you ever been given a promise? I was racking my brain trying to think of examples of, substantial examples of times that I have either made or received a substantial promise, and it actually kind of was hard. I mean, besides the sort of flippant ways we are in arguments with somebody and say, no, did that really, yeah, I promise, I promise, that's what it said, or that's what I did, blah, 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 Um, a really substantial weighty promise, an eye-to-eye looking into someone, committing to something of importance. Uh, just t- for me, two things came to mind. Uh, the first was uh, my wedding day, when across the aisle from one another, uh, me and Suzanne are looking at each other and just hearing her repeating back the vows that the minister saying to me, looking me in the eye, holding my hand and telling me, no matter what happens, no matter how difficult things get, no matter how bad I mess up, no matter how much poverty we run into, uh, no matter how much sickness or hardship we endure. Her saying, Cameron, I promise to be faithful. That's weighty. And of course, I did the same to her. Uh, a- another one that came to mind, and, and this, was, this was not even something I necessarily planned to do, but um, the, the, the times when both of my sons were born, and by the way, we just had our second son about 11 weeks ago, uh, yeah, a little baby boy named Ezra Lewis Hager. He's a little, little champ. But, so I, I just had this experience, and I had it again, or I had it before with my first son, Lane, but, but I remember various times early on, you know, in the hospital, and then a few weeks later, and then a few months later, and then with Lane, I, I can think of times in the last week when just looking at this little human... Looking at this little human and feeling just such a profound sense of love and affection and commitment to him, just welling up inside my heart, just this thought, I will never leave you. I love you. You have me forever. And sometimes that, that wells up to the point where I, I just, I have, to, I have to express it in some way. So I've just taken both of these little kids and I've just whisper, I like to whisper into their ear things like that, like, Daddy loves you. Daddy will always be here. There is nothing you could ever do that would make you lose Daddy's love. Um, I, what I'm doing is I'm promising myself to these kids uh, in a way that's not flippant, that's not jokey. It's it's life and death. Um, that's the kind of frequency, this frequency of real, substantial promise that Paul is trying to get us onto in Galatians at the end here of Galatians chapter 4. So with that with that kind of thought in your head, let's read. He starts here in verse 21. He says, "Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law?" So this is this is not a new theme he's introducing. He's once again accusing the Galatians of wanting to return to the law but actually not understanding it in full not actually being aware of what it was intended to do, not actually understanding how the heart of God comes through the expression of the law. Uh, so he says, listen, you want to talk law, let's talk law. He says, you want to be under the law, do you actually know the story of the law? You know, the, law, the, phrase, the word law can be taken in at least three ways. It can refer to the specific commands that God's given, kind of legal passages of the Bible. It can refer to the first five books of the Bible. And later it became to be shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament, both the law, the writings, and the prophets. So he's saying, you want to be under these laws? Well, don't you even know the story of the law? Don't you even know how this thing works is what Paul's doing. He's saying, you think you know it, but you're distorting it. So here's how. Let's keep reading. Um, he says, for it is written that Adam or Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And let's pause there. I just Here's a little side note for you. I'm really, really hopeful that for, for all of you, and, and I think it's been the case for me, that the book of Galatians is helping us all to see the deep beauty and coherence and, and consistency uh, of the entire storyline of the whole Bible. Like, make no mistake, the, the, what the New Testament focuses on in the incarnation and ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus is wholly unique in, in history. Like, it is absolutely unique that God became flesh in human history in the person of Jesus. And, and the Bible makes it clear that Jesus really did accomplish something absolutely unique in the cross and resurrection. But but what Paul is going to continue to push us back toward is the fact that the heart of this God who gives himself freely to his people, who who promises to bless them before they've even done a single thing, who offers mercy and grace to those who trust him, this heart has not changed. Sometimes the, the caricature we have of, of the Old Testament God being sort of this graceless bully and then Jesus kind of being the cool God who comes in on his motorcycle or something, like, that that is not the way if an honest reading of the bible depicts god he has been consistent in his loving kindness and in his grace since the beginning so side note over so paul's going to appeal to the story of abraham and his first two sons and i don't know if you grew up in church or if you've been around church for a while if you have it's probably a story that you've you've heard taught before Um in fact, even if you've just been reading, doing the Bible read through with us, uh in I think the very first week of January, we covered this story. He's talking about a story that spans Genesis 12 to 21. Um and I'll just he's he's kind of given a cliff notes version, I'll give you a little bit more. So basically in Genesis 12, there's a man named Abram. And God comes to Abram and he tells him, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. He says, I'm gonna bless, I'm gonna give you blessing, I'm gonna give you land and I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Why did God pick Abraham? Anybody know? We don't know. It was, a, it was a, an act of unmerited favor on Abraham. It just, just, just a gracious promise to this random guy that I have chosen you to enact this project that's going to result in even the birth of life and death of Jesus and the salvation of all mankind. Abraham doesn't know that's where it's going, but that's where it's going. So God, just in his freedom and graciousness, love, he chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you with these things. So time passes, and God comes and narrows the promise. He, the time comes in Genesis 15. He says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Here's, here's how this nation is going to come. You're going to have a son. Abraham says, okay, it's awesome. We're going to have a son. Uh, Well, more time passes, and Abraham and his wife Sarah are still waiting around for the son to come. And now, in the story, the time has gotten, so much time has passed that, that Sarah is now no longer able to conceive, bear, birth a child. She's aged out of the ability to be pregnant. So they're kind of looking at each other and going, okay, what's going on with this promise? God said one thing, but he's, he's clearly not delivering in the way that we thought he would. Uh, so what are we going to do? And Sarah comes up with this, this scheme uh, whereby she says, you know what, Abraham, why don't you take my slave by the name of Hagar, take her, sleep with her, and we'll have the son that way. That's how we'll have the heir, and that's how we'll fulfill the promise of God. Good idea, bad idea, bad idea, always a bad idea. So they do this, Uh, Hagar sleeps with Abraham, and she conceives a child, and the child is born, and it's a son, and they name him Ishmael. Well, sometime after that, God finally, supernaturally, miraculously, again, against all odds, against the very natural processes of human biology, God comes to Abraham and to Sarah, and he declares she's pregnant she does conceive a son, Abraham's son. And she gives birth to this child, the promised child. And they name him Isaac. Isaac. So as you might expect, there's family discord in this arrangement. There's tension between the mothers. There's tension between the sons. And Sarah comes to Abram and says, you need to send these two away. Get rid of them get rid of Hagar, get rid of Ishmael, I, I, I can't handle this. And he agrees to do it. So they banish Hagar and Ishmael. A really interesting detail is that God comes to Abraham and assures him that he's going to still provide for them and care for them. And is even going to make Ishmael, in fact, a great nation as well because of what he's committed to Abraham. So God's grace just flows and flows and flows throughout all this mess. So, key point here is that Isaac is the son from which the nation of Israel descended. Isaac was the father of Jacob who became Israel, who had the 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes, and so on. The whole story of the Old Testament and the lineage of even Jesus Christ flows through Isaac. Ishmael, we're told, is the father of many Arab nations and effectively Gentiles. And so uh, there you go. So this story, the story of, of, of God's promised son, Isaac, is going to be closely knit to the heart of Jewish identity and the identity now, and in, in this problem Paul's dealing with in Galatia of this kind of Christian, Judaistic religion as well. Isaac's the one. Okay, got the story. Let's keep going. Um, well, actually, let's pause there for a second. Let's pause there for a second. This story has a lot going on. On one level, it's just a story about man's refusal to trust and obey God. Uh, it's a reminder, of course, I, I hope you get this, that, that even the, the heroes of faith depicted in the Bible are, are, are always, the, the merely human heroes, the ones apart from Jesus, they are always flawed. They're always, their sin always gets the better of them at key moments in the story. So even someone like Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith, is depicted as deeply, deeply flawed. But at the most central, fundamental level, what this story is about is about the faithfulness of God, the God who who freely promises himself to someone and then freely, powerfully, miraculously acts and intervenes in human history to make his promise come true. That's who God is. That's what the story reveals about God. And before we keep going with what Paul's doing in Galatians, I think now is the right time, once again, to just take some stock of the way God has been faithful to us, Door of Hope, as we close this season at Revolution Hall. Maybe. (laughs) We may be Isn't that the most Door of Hope thing ever? (laughs) We should all journal about how this week is going down so we don't forget. It's pretty awesome. Um... But let's think about it. I don't know how much you know. I mean, Mark, Mark was uh, kind of gave the broad strokes as well, but how we ended up here was that it was um, kind of a precarious time in Door of Hope's history. At, at that time, we had felt led to kind of pursue what we were calling the parish model. So we had worship services going both in northeast at the Fremont building and in southeast at a rented Episcopal church space. Uh, and we found ourselves duplicating preaching and duplicating volunteers and it, there was just so much energy and effort, and, and uh, we'd realized we'd bit off more than we could chew in the end. I felt like we were running ourselves and, and our leaders and volunteers a bit ragged. And so we, we realized what we need right now is a time and a season of respite and of, of healing and of shoring up our internal structures and of just getting healthy as a church. It was kind of a ragged time for us. Those of you that were around probably remember. There was, there, there, there was a heaviness in the air for many of us around that time. And Revolution Hall became, became an option, and we came and visited, and we, we felt like God was leading us to come here, uh, that, it, that it was going to meet that need for that particular season of regrouping and healing up, and it has. You know, s- some of us were, were deeply saddened and frustrated to leave, say, the Fremont building to come here, um, but there, by the same token, there's some of you, this is all you know of Door of Hope. And and you have nothing but beautiful memories of being in this space and worshiping together and, and hearing the gospel proclaimed and finding community and going and living life with those people that you found. Friends, there are people that have found Jesus Christ in a saving relationship with Him here in this space at this time. Did you know that? There are people who were lonely, lonely, isolated, apart from any cr- meaningful Christian community that have found deep and rich community by virtue of coming here on Sunday. There are people, there are people even who, because they've had such difficult and painful, um, one might even say at times abusive relationships with churches, that that, that the thought of stepping into a church building is far too intimidating, but they've they've said, I still want to pursue God. I can go to Revolution Hall. I know that that's a safe place. That's happened. That's some of your stories. And regardless of whether you've, you're you excited to leave or wish we were staying here or indifferent to the whole matter, I think it's just worth noting, like, the church, our church, has been so blessed and protected and carried along by the Lord through this season. We just need to take a moment to acknowledge it and say, thank you, Jesus, that though Though this may not be the optimal place for some of us, the Lord has proven faithful to make much of himself and to continue to draw and save people. Amen? Yeah. Okay. So God is faithful. He is faithful. He will be faithful. That's what the story of God with Abraham encourages us to think of. So now Paul's going to do something really interesting with it. Let's continue reading verse 24, first part there. He says now this the story, story we just went over, it may be interpreted allegorically, and let's pause there for a second. So Paul is going to do an allegorical reading of the story of Abraham and his two sons. Um most of you know probably what an allegory is. Uh, our culture has, has a pretty significant place for allegory. In fact, Christians tend to love allegories. Uh, Christ, Christian writers have, have made re- great use of that art form. Think of something like the Chronicles of Narnia, where the different events that happen and the characters often signify different things in the Christian life. You know, Narnia specifically, you've got the great lion, Aslan, at the center of the story who, uh, who's representative of Jesus and his dealings with his people. Uh, even more kind of into the minutiae, something like John, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read that? If you haven't read that, you should read it. It's, it's amazing. But every single element that the hero encounters in that story is it's literally named as some sort of challenge or some sort of difficulty or aspect of the Christian life. Every character, every action, every location, basically. In movies, think of, think of the layering of symbols and metaphors in something like The Matrix, which could honestly allegorize several different things, or, friends, listen to this one, take the intricate, forceful, yet delicate allegorizing of the challenges of late capitalism alongside the loss of journalistic integrity found in Anchorman (laughs) 2. That's the most ridiculous sentence I've ever written. But you know allegory. In Paul's day, this was actually a pretty common practice uh, for interpreting, interpreting other ancient texts. Uh, the idea was simply that, that you'd take a text where something's presented literally and you would allow it to bring to mind something else. And so he's going to take a pretty straightforward story from Genesis about God's dealing with this particular family, and he's going to draw some allegorical significance to illustrate something about the gospel. Okay, So that's what's going on. So as we keep going, he's now entering allegory land and he's going to be importing some meaning. And you'll see why this is important that we keep this in mind as we keep going. But he's going to be importing some meaning that wasn't there necessarily in the original story. So let's keep reading. So keep going in verse 24. He says, these women, here we go, here's the allegory. These women are two covenants. Hmm. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, and he stops the the allegory there. So what is going on? Let's take a look at this slide. We can just see it all laid out side by side. He's got two tracks here from Abraham. In the line of Sarah... You have Isaac, the son of the free woman or the son of freedom. We're told earlier that his birth came through the promise of God. It's implied that, that uh, it's represented by Mount Zion in contrast to Mount Sinai on the other side. And it's, uh, we're, we're told that, that Sarah and Isaac represent the heavenly Jerusalem. On the other side, you have Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael, and Ishmael is the son of the slave woman, or the son of slavery. His birth was according to the flesh, we're told, representing Mount Sinai. Remember, Mount Sinai is where the Mosaic law was given. That's where the law that's been such a big theme in Galatians, so Mount Sinai could be shorthand for the law, the giving of the law. And present Jerusalem. So in Paul's day... He's thinking of this, the current city of Jerusalem being represented by Hagar. Okay, so the, it's a little complex what's going on here, but I want to I, I want to note something that, insofar as the first few lines of that comparison go, I, I don't think Paul's average reader is going to have a problem. But do you see something weird? Let's highlight it. What Paul is doing here is he's actually associating what is historically the line of, comes from the line of Isaac. Through Isaac came the nation of Israel and came the law and came Moses' encounter on Sinai and all these things. But he's actually saying, no, no, no. Though historically, uh, in, in human terms, that may have been the case, when it comes to matters of the gospel and actually understanding our relationship with God, Mount Sinai and the law and the present Jerusalem, even the temple system around it, they're from the line of the slave. They're from the line of the slave. Now friends, this is them be fighting words, okay? This is intense. This is intense what he's laying out here. He's basically saying that for anybody who, who's trying to keep the law as their justification before God, for anyone who's trying to rely on the law, including the ethnic Jews who've been doing such, the line that you thought you were part of, you have cut yourself off from. You are now not associated with freedom. You're associated with slavery. You're not associated with the, the Jerusalem above and the eternal people of God and the program that God's doing to restore all people to himself uh, you are associated with the, heavenly, with the earthly Jerusalem. And it's failure to recognize King Jesus. Do you see why this might be controversial? So here's, here's, what he's ultimately doing is making a point about the gospel. Remember, that's what the Galatians keeps coming back to is what is the gospel. And he's saying the gospel is not entered into by human schemes, by human plans, by human efforts. It's not entered into, even, friends, by your ethnic identity or your cultural identity. You're not born into the family of God by virtue of good luck. But what you actually have is promise. The only thing you have to enter the family of God is promise. And when someone makes a promise to you, what do you do? What do you do? How do you receive a promise, people? It's, it's kind of a weird question to ask, isn't it? Because there's not a clear answer. If I were to, to promise you something really profound, I, you know, I promise you, Guy, I'm promising you that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for you. What do you do in response to that? There's really nothing to do. You, you sort of just have to trust me, right? You sort of just have to to, to look to me and say, okay, I think Cameron is going to do the thing that he's offered. That's it. So he's going back to this story, and he's saying, look, you want to understand the gospel, you have to understand that God has acted, he has acted, he's promised to act, and he's acted. And all we do is say, yes, God, I trust that you will do that thing that you've said. Paul's already used this illustration earlier in Galatians that that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. It says the opposite of that true gospel attitude towards God and what he's promised to do is the scheming. It's to say, you've promised me a son, or let's say you've promised me salvation, but I am going to scheme and work my way to make sure that I get it. I'll do the work okay, salvation, surely I've got to do a bunch of good works. All right, I'm going to build out this program. I'm going to keep the thing. Oh, or even more conveniently, I've got this entire law found in the first five books of the Bible. I'll just follow that. Thank you, God. I've got it from here. Do you see these two paths? There's a way, there's a birth through promise. And there's a birth according to the flesh. And Paul wants us to be absolutely clear on the fact that the Christian gospel is received through promise only. Promise only. So he's going to do one more thing here. He's, he's now compared, he's compared the gospel and those, rece- those who received the gospel to the, the Jerusalem above. And so he's going to quote one more Old Testament passage. So well, one more we got to do. So he, he comes in verse 27, and he's going to quote Isaiah 54.1. You can write that down if you're taking notes. He's, this is a quotation, a direct quotation of Isaiah 54.1, where he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than, the, than those of the one who has a husband. So what's going on in Isaiah 54.1? Well, Isaiah 54 is a prophecy about Israel after their exile. And just in short, if you don't know the story of the exile after Israel is established as a kingdom. uh, There's a long and rocky history of multiple kings and then there's a division in the kingdom. Uh, Israel divides into two, into a kingdom of Israel and a kingdom of Judah. And both kingdoms end up getting taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so they're taken from their land the t- they're taken from the temple, even, and they, they, they've lost that big part of their national identity as the people in that land, at that place, around that temple, uh, practicing that law together. And so, Isaiah, God, speaking through Isaiah, is saying, I, at this point in history, during, during the exile, Jerusalem is, is compared to this old woman whose, whose husband has died and has no children to come back and care for her. And so the, the metaphorical question is like, who is going to come back and restore this great city? Who is going to come back and, and be God's representation in this land? Who is going to come and, bring, and restore her to her former glory? And we have the same kind of promise. Doesn't God love to use these, these, these sort of images? Desolate woman, the children of you will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And it's... Once again, it's a biolog- in, in terms of this metaphor, it's a biological impossibility. This woman's not going to conceive children. And yet, and yet, God promises it will be full of descendants, full of people, return to its former glory in an astounding and, and incredible way. Let's keep going. Here's where Paul applies it. He's doing all these Bible connections here. He's tracing this theme of God intervening and and providing amidst barrenness. And now he's going to bring it home to apply. He says this, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay. So I want to address verse 30 real quick, because that might have just jarred some of you as you read the story. Again, Paul's still operating in allegory land here. Um, and he's repurposing. That's a quote from Sarah that he's quoting. That's, that's the text from when Sarah says, Abraham, let's cast out the slave woman and her son. And he's repurposing it. So this is clearly not intended to be some sort of categorical statement about how slaves have no inheritance amongst the people of God. You get that, right? He's not saying the lowly slaves have no part of the gospel. He's, he's not saying anything of that sort. In fact, even historically, God was faithful to care for Hagar and Ishmael, even after this whole episode. And one of the big themes of the book of Galatians has been the way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ has made clear that God's purpose for all time has always been to cast the widest net possible to invite all of the people of all the nations to come to find faith and trust and right relationship with God and him. So don't don't get thrown off here by that. His point is this. The true lineage of the gospel comes down to one thing. It's not biology. It's not bloodline. It's not cultural consistency over time. It's the promise of God to save a people for himself. That is it. And anyone who's going to come into the true family of God The heavenly Jerusalem, the church, the kingdom of God. All these interrelated subjects. They're going to come the same way Abraham had to come to God the Father all the way back in Genesis. And it's simply with faith, with trust, with belief. God, you have promised to do a thing. And I can't add one inch to it. There's nothing I can do to make that thing happen. I'm utterly helpless except to say you've promised it so I'm going to trust and receive it. Whatever that looks like, whatever that means, I'm going to trust you, God, that you're going to do it. So friends, the gospel, as we continue to talk about every week, and I hope, hope we're just gonna, like a diamond, just keep turning and turning and seeing all the different angles of it, the gospel this week we're reminded is it's the culmination of all the promises of God and itself is a promise. God has chosen to give himself to die on a cross, to take away the punishments, the penalties, and the effects of sin onto himself so that we don't have to bear them. He has dealt with humanity's rebellion against him once for all, doing every inch of the work that has to be done for that to be accomplished. There is no work left for you, Christian. There is no work left for you to do. He has promised it, and he has done it. He's promised it, and he's done it. Like with Abraham, he's just drawing a straight line between Abraham, the promise to Abraham and the promise of the gospel. Like with Abraham, our only part is to simply believe it, that he's done it. That what he's promised us, he will be faithful to. We believe, we trust, we have faith in the fact that God has done what he said. But also, like it was with Abraham, we're going to have a hard time doing that, aren't we? I mean, probably every day is marked with some moment where we're tempted out of fear or insecurity lack of trust or lack of faith or whatever it may be to try to add to the promise to try to make the promise true according to our own effort. Like with Abraham and Sarah we want to scheme and we want to find a way to add to the work of Jesus on the cross to have some way to accomplish for ourselves what he's promised maybe to feel like we've earned it. Paul says that any of our efforts along these lines to secure his promise for us are works of the flesh. So I don't know what it was this week, but if you're a believer, we've probably all been in these, in these situations. Maybe at the beginning of the year, you said, I'm going to do the Bible Project reading plan. Man, I've, I have been so, I have had no discipline in my life about reading the scriptures. I know I need to. I know it would be good for me. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start. I'm going to read a little bit every day. I'm going to read this thing in a year. Now we're in April. You made it to page 15. That's some of us. He said, okay, no, no, I, listen, I, I, listen my, my spouse and I, I know we've, we've really been struggling to have really, I don't know, spiritual intimacy. We don't feel, it doesn't feel like we can talk about spiritual things. It doesn't feel like we can really get on the same page. So we've committed. We're going to pray every day together for just five minutes a day. We're going to pray five minutes a day, and that's just going to be a thing that's going to kind of get us in the habit of sort of just that spiritual intimacy that seems like all of our peers have. Two weeks in, nothing. Maybe you've been just crushed under the weight of what the New Testament calls uh, the nature of pure religion and beautiful religion, caring for the vulnerable, caring for the widow and the orphan, society's most vulnerable and oppressed. Said, so, you know, what? I'm gonna, I'm just gonna commit every week. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna volunteer down at Portland Rescue Mission. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be faithful. I'm gonna make sure that that I'm, you know, pitching in. That my religion is beautiful. It's true. It's right. And then, a month out, things just got too crazy. You couldn't do it. Whatever it is, whatever, as you, as you think through your relationship with God and, and, and you feel little hot spots and little points of tension where you think, man, I do not think I'm doing what I need to be doing. Wherever that is, Jesus wants to offer you freedom. Freedom. That's the whole point of this text. He wants to say, you don't get it. I have done it. the words of, his words, very words from the cross, it is finished. There is not one inch, not one millimeter, not one microscopic, I don't even know how to measure that stuff, that you can add to the finished work that I did on the cross to secure your relationship with me and with God the Father. That's what Jesus says. And friends, there are sermons for, talk- is obedience part of the Christian life? Is that a Christian word? <laughs> yes. It's a very Christian word. Obedience. Is discipline part of the Christian life? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a place for discipline and Room for sermons on discipline? Um, or, how about this one? Is works part of the Christian life? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's prepared us for good works that we might walk in them. So Paul, Paul's point is not, great, no discipline, no, we don't, no effort being expended or whatever. Those are sermons for another day, but what Paul would go to his grave defending is the fact that those things must always, in every instance, fall behind the secure trust in the promise of God that he has already saved us. If we don't have that locked in first, then we're going to end up enslaved. We're going to end up emotional wrecks, fearing God every time we pray with him because we've failed to measure up to some imaginary standard that we've created when he's just said, come to me and rest you felt that? Yeah. Yeah. The gospel is received as a promise. We receive it in faith. We receive it in trust that God has done it. He is doing it. And he will finish everything associated with it at some point. And yes, we have responses to that, but do not let that response ever replace the rest in the work that He has accomplished. Amen? Amen. So maybe you're here today and you feel crushed by the weight of the question Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough for God to love me? Have I done enough to earn His affection? Has my life measured up to his standard? If you find your mind drifting to these questions, I have a question for you. Does it feel like slavery? My hunch is it does. And my invitation to you today is to see that in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God has made good on his promises, friends. He says that he has... He came for the world. He died for the world. He's available to the world. And he's available for anyone who will simply come and say, I don't know, Lord, what it looks like, but in faith I'm saying, I want that. I want you. Save me. That's it. And then there's a lifetime of other stuff to figure out, but we cannot ever let that beginning point that we never graduate from get lost in the mix. Amen? Let's pray.